guys, welcome to another episode of Nihongo Master Podcast. I'm your host Azra and I'm really excited about the topic we'll be chatting about today, subculture mania. Anyone with an interest in Japan will definitely have seen pictures online of all the weird and wonderful fashion out here. From girls dressed like 18th century toddlers, to guys that look like they walked right off the set of the musical Grease. Contrast that with the sea of business suits you'll see in every train station during rush hour, and it's easy to see why that eccentricity stands out so much. In fact, that's kind of the point. Despite its often wacky reputation, Japanese people are actually generally quite restrained and have a strong collectivist mentality. This means that the vast majority of people just want to conform and blend into the surroundings. But for a select few, the urge is to stand out as much as possible. Generally speaking, the more conservative the culture, the weirder and wilder kinds of non-conformism you'll find on its fringes. That's why when it comes to subcultures in Japan, you either go big or go home. A touch of hair dye and a couple of piercings just ain't gonna cut it. With other like-minded individuals, the members of these groups create a safe space for themselves to explore their unconventional interests and express their unique selves. The cost of entries to one of these closed-off little communities is usually an outrageous outfit or two, some niche musical knowledge and sometimes a thick layer of makeup for good measure. Today, we'll look at five different unique subcultures to find out who they are, where they came from, and also what they wear. Expect the usual suspects like biker teens and the Harajuku girls, but also a few which might be totally new to you. So put on your brightest t-shirt, grab a 5-gallon tub of hair gel, and let's go join some of the strangest subcultures of Japan. First off, we're going to dive right into the prominent Lolita subculture. Now, the name Lolita has some pretty unfortunate associations attached to it since the release of a certain Vladimir Nabokov novel in the 50s. But rest assured, this subculture is nothing to do with that. Japanese Lolita culture is all about the kawaii or cute aesthetic, which basically means trying to appear childlike and innocent while sticking to the traditional Japanese modesty at the same time. Yep, those girls you might have seen draped in lace, clutching parasols, and speaking in voices so high-pitched they could smash a glass. That's who we're talking about here. Though the origin of Lolita is ambiguous, the first big wave of cuteness overload made an impact on the streets of Japan, particularly the Harajuku neighbourhood in the late 1970s when big brands like Milk and Pink House picked up the fashion style for use in their collections. It surged again on the music scene of the 1990s, thanks to bands in the closely related Visual K subculture, which we'll talk about later. The unorthodox fashion style of Lolita is mostly influenced by the Victorian and late Baroque periods of Europe, often meshed up with more modern design elements from other influences like punk and goth. Picture a 19th century baroness who also happens to be a massive fan of The Cure, and you're about there. Throughout the decades, Lolita has branched out into a couple of other sub-styles under the umbrella of the original. The so-called sweet Lolita is easily identifiable by the extensive usage of pink, white, and lace. Hime, or Princess Lolita, is all about the royal theme of puffy layered dresses and ruffles. Punk Lolita features heavy, dramatic makeup with a mix of red and black. But don't confuse it with Gothic Lolita, which takes the Victorian clothing and the colour black, to the extreme. Despite the various substyles, all of them adhere to the general rule of the Lolita subculture. Extreme delicateness and a highly exaggerated femininity in their dress sense. 
The unofficial official uniform of a Lolita features petticoats under high-coloured dresses, high stockings, a dramatic hairstyle and wild accessories of lace and ribbon. Although nowadays, girls are becoming more and more experimental with this basic formula. There are a few words which can use to say dress in Japanese. Usually it's called wanpisu, deriving from the word one piece in English. But you can also call it dorasu. If you can't really tell, it sounds just like the English word dress. The latter, however, is usually used for fancy dresses like ball gowns or the Victorian frocks these girls wear. Nobody really expected this niche Japanese subculture to make its way to the Western world. But in the early 2000s, it did just that. Japonophiles in America and Europe have been aware of it for some time. But Lolita was brought into the collective consciousness at large when singer Gwen Stefani released a song called Harajuku Girl in 2004. This was the push the Lolita subculture needed to properly get its hooks into Northern American pop culture. Gwen Stefani had four backup dancers for her music video, known as the Harajuku Girls. As the name suggests, these girls were dressed in full Harajuku style, donning Lolita-esque baby doll dresses. While these backup dancers were the original Harajuku girls, the term soon became a byword for the quirky and vibrant trends of women's style on the streets of Harajuku, which is just a short walk from Tokyo's Shibuya. More often than not, the vast majority of new Harajuku styles are influenced in some way by the Lolita subculture, one of the oldest and boldest styles born there. Some would describe Lolita's subculture style as childlike and overly girly, but to the devoted followers of Lolita, it's a statement of empowerment. Some consider it as a way of going against the social norms of the conservative Japanese culture and standing out from the crowd. Others see Lolita as a rebellion against the sexualization of women by retreating to a highly modest, but still extremely decorative, style. While nowadays, the more mainstream presence of Lolita is a lot about the visuals and less about the original principles underpinning it, pioneers of the subcultures are still doing their best to keep these beliefs alive. Here's a quick recap of some of the vocab from this famous subculture. Kawaii, cute. Hime, princess. Wanpisu, a word for everyday dresses, jumpsuits and other similar clothing. Dorasu, a word for fancier dresses. Moving on to the next subculture, which I've already mentioned briefly, Visual K. K actually means style, so Visual K literally means visual style. Originally, this was primarily a musical genre that combines punk and glam rock with kabuki, a type of traditional Japanese theatre. The distinctive visuals of these Visual K bands, comparable with the aesthetics of the likes of Motley Crue, soon became the primary image of the subculture. But there's more to it than just flamboyant leather costumes and industrial amounts of hairspray. The pioneers of this music genre slash subculture are said to be a heavy metal band called X-Japan, formed in 1982. This group of guys were the first in Japan to rock huge, unconventional hairstyles, dramatic makeup and costumes which can be described as both neuromatic feminine and medieval masculine. Think lipstick, leather and pieces of metal armour. Their musical performances were a uniquely Japanese take on heavy metal, with dramatic movements that greatly resembled the visual language of kabuki theatre acts. Acts Japan inspired others to push their own boundaries. While originally Visual K was restricted to the heavy metal domain, 
it eventually spread into further subgenres, which brought from other parts of the Western music scene. As for the visuals themselves, this subculture is known to bend the rules of traditional masculinity, promoting androgyny and straight-up cross-dressing. Heeled boots and long, flowy coats that look stolen from a Renaissance-era Venetian are par for the cause among the bands and their fans. Color-shocking hairstyles come hand-in-hand hand with thick makeup and elaborate costumes that defy gender norms. The key point is glam. Lots and lots of glam. Whichever subgenre you're in, you're always guaranteed to be one of the most flamboyant people in the room. Altogether, it conjures up an image of a shoujo prince. Shoujo is a genre of manga, Japanese comics, that targets the female audience, and usually, they feature a handsome male lead with a prince-like appeal. Both shoujo and visual K celebrate the idea of the beautiful man, in a very feminized sense, which is quite at odds with the taste of a lot of North American and European women. This idea of the unattainable perfection of a young pretty guy is what draws in the hordes of screaming fans towards visual K bands. Although they might look a bit like Marilyn Manson, the overall effect is more similar to One Direction. While the most iconic visual K look draws upon new romantic makeup, Renaissance clothing and hair metal flamboyance, this is a little outdated nowadays. These old school looks, known as the koteki subgenre, are nowadays more reserved for the OGVKs. Their spiritual descendants belong to the Oshareki. Oshare in Japanese means fashionable, but I'll leave it up to you to judge whether they really are or not. They're easily recognizable by their use of brighter colors rather than black, white, deep purple, and deep red palette of old. Similarly, the music of the bands belonging to this subgenre is more electronically tinged, drawing upon elements of techno. The whole idea of Visual K is to be different, and very noticeably so. Original bands of the genre made the subculture as a movement of individual expression and exploration through the means of dramatic performance as well as their everyday appearance. Nowadays though, much of the punk, political underpinnings have all but evaporated. Instead of running counter to the status quo, Visual K has become more and more mainstream. Who knows, maybe one day the pioneers of Visual K will make a comeback and drag it back to its roots. For now though, we can just enjoy marvelling at the ridiculously gravity-defying hairstyles of this lot as they march around Shibuya. Okay, here's a quick vocab recap from Visual K. K. Style. Kabuki. A type of traditional Japanese theatre which became really big in the Edo era. Manga. Japanese comic. Shoujo, a manga genre targeted at a female audience. Oshare, fashionable. You've probably heard about this next subculture if you've watched your fair share of anime, or the show Kamikaze Girls, a novel-turned-drama surrounding the friendship between a lolita and her Yankee bestie. Every country has its own counterpart to Japan's Yankee. Just have a think about who the teenage terrorists are in yours the fist-fighting mods of the 20th century England, the Malay Matrips or the Chinese Abings of my native Singapore, the wannabe teen gangsters of the US suburbs. In fact, the last one is a pretty good comparison because the Yankees are kind of closely related to the Japanese gangsters, the Yakuza. Think of them as a younger, softer, less threatening version, Yakuza-like, if you will. Rather than forming into proper criminal clans, they tend to just classify themselves by whichever school they went to and potentially dropped out of. 
Usually, working-class youths still in school, or gakko, make up the Yankee subculture. That's why Japanese society connects Yankee with juvenile delinquency. These teenage terrorists started their campaign of rebellion after World War II, when life was chaotic at best. Rather than falling into lockstep with their peers, in the 1950s, these angry young men and women took to skipping school, idolizing petty criminals, picking fights with other groups, and listening to American rock and roll. In a way, they were symptomatic of the general disaffection of the Japanese people after World War II, when they had most of their national identities stripped away. Yankee are often associated with the motorcycle gang Bosozoku, and for the most part, they're one and the same, with one not-so-minor difference. The Bosozoku can afford motorcycles, the Yankees can't. They are largely high schoolers after all, and the parents of working-class kids don't tend to buy them expensive motorbikes for their sweet 16. I should mention that, although the general movement of teenage rebellion stretches back to the 50s, the 1970s is when the specific term Yankee was initially coined. It's thought that this happened on the streets of Amerikamura, a neighbourhood in Osaka, perhaps derived from the phrase Yankee go home, a favour of anti-American Japanese nationalists of the time. As you can guess from the name itself, Amerikamura, more popularly known as Amemura, translates to American village. Mura means village in Japanese. The neighbourhood's full of American-style bars, restaurants and fashion outlets. Members of the Yankee subculture wander the streets of Osaka in flashy clothing from Amemura's shops. Because the Yankee are closely associated with the Bosozoku, it's not uncommon for them to be seen in long jackets called Tokofuku to mean special attack clothing. This fuku, clothing in Japanese, usually has embroidered kanji characters on it, displaying the gang logo and slogan. From the Yankee heyday of the 1980s to now, the image has included seifuku, school uniforms that have been modified, shorter skirts for the girls and extremely baggy pants for the guys. But don't just assume every boy and girl with a modified seifuku is a Yankee. Be honest, how many of us shorten our skirts in school? I remember rolling mine up so many times that I looked like I had a beer belly. In recent decades, there's also been a swing away from motorbike gear towards hip-hop culture instead. But what remains consistent in pretty much every iteration of this rebellious youth demographic from the 50s until now is the hair, often dyed in blonde or red. The hair plays quite an important role in the look, as the 80s Yankee believed that a tight perm was a symbol of pride. And unlike the visual key guys, Yankee men stick to a mega macho masculinity. They'll even pick fights with those who don't play by those same traditional rules. Whether you see these teens as dangerous delinquents or working class kids doing their best to get by, they're undoubtedly here to stay. Part of the reason for this is the sense of belonging that this way of life gives to the kids from troubled backgrounds. Yankee members from a close-knit community in which they stick together from school all the way through adulthood. Their loyalty to their group can be a good and a bad thing. It's because of those values that this subculture is still alive and strong to this day, but it also runs the risk of driving the Yankee members towards another kind of close-knit group, which is far more dangerous. The Yakuza clans. Don't let that sour their reputation entirely though. The vast majority of teenage terrorists in Japan end up in normal, honest employment, usually in blue-collar industries like construction. A few skip days in high school doesn't necessarily make you mafia material after all. 
Right, now for a recap of the vocab related to Japan's rebellious youth. Gakko, school. Seifuku, school uniform. Fuku, clothing. Mura, village. Our next subculture takes us onto a lighter note. No gang, no rebellion, no fistfights. Just dancing and music. That's ongaku in Japanese, with amazing quiffs to boot. The Japanese rockabilly subculture might draw their cultural inspiration from the 1950s, but they're very much alive and well in 2020 around the Yoyogi area in Tokyo. Paying homage to the classic greasers of the 1950s, the Yoyogi greasers have formed an official dancing group called the Tokyo Rockabilly Club, which make a dance floor out of Yoyogi Park every Sunday. They gather in the dozens and take turns showing off their best retro moves, with boomboxes blasting all the latest hits of... 1955. Yep, it all started back in 1955 when the song Rock Around the Clock made its way to Japan, dominating the charts. In those days, getting your hands on music wasn't as easy as hitting play on Spotify. Rockabilly enthusiasts had to find ways to listen to their favourite music genre without breaking the bank on expensive audio gear and import records. Back then, you could sit by the radio for hours waiting to catch your favourite songs buy the released record itself, which in post-war Japan wouldn't have been cheap, or follow local performers who played covers. The hype over American rock and roll culture became huge back then, thanks in part to our friends the Yankees, then dissolved as fast as it appeared. Back in the 1970s, Japanese rockabilly made a comeback as a throwback to that craze in music and dance dance in Japanese, not to mention style. The Japanese rockabilly subculture is known for their commitment to the cause of maintaining the aesthetics of the classic greasers. You can bet that members of the Japanese rockabilly are always in black leather, from top to bottom. Leather jackets, or jacketto, leather gloves, or tebukuro, leather boots, everything. You might even think they're overdoing it just a bit. I mean, some of them kind of look like crazy caricature of the fawns rather than a bona fide American rockabilly. And the hair doesn't help the authenticity. They take the iconic pompadour hairstyle torn weights, literally, greased up to a comically big peak and combed slickly at the sides with a ducktail at the back. In Japanese, they call the style Rizento. You might argue that it's even more significant in the subculture than the dancing. As for the girls, their take on rock and roll culture can be a little more colourful. While some of them don all black leather like the guys, others sport 1950s poodle skirts, polka dots and all, presenting themselves as swing dancers. The Japanese rockabilly subculture is a little different in character to the others on our list, which are all about going against the norm. This one's simply a revival of a fellow favour music genre through lively dance routines, sometimes even reenactment of scenes from the movie Grease and dramatic visuals. They might look a little intimidating, but the worst the Yoyogi greasers are ever going to do is challenge you to a retro dance-off. Here's a quick recap of some of the vocab from this famous subculture. Rizento, a classic pompadour hairstyle. Jacketto, jacket. Tebukuro, gloves. Ongaku, music. Dansu, dance. Last, but far from least, we have the Gyaru subculture, derived from the English word gal. 
It's probably the youngest subculture on our list, but it's also arguably the most groundbreaking. Emerging largely out of the blue in the 1990s, the gal culture seeks to defy the traditional beauty standards of Japan, where fairer skin and dark hair are the definition of utsukushisa, beauty. The gyaru girls of this subcultural movement get heavy tans, hiyake in Japanese, for a much darker skin tone, and contrast this with bleach blonde or similarly light-toned hair. Short skirts and lower-cut cleavage make an appearance too, as does extensive makeup, sometimes seriously extensive, like it would take a whole pack of wet wipes every day to get it off. If you're from the UK or the Jersey Shore, that look probably sounds extremely familiar to you, as it's much more in keeping with the beauty standards you'll see on show at the bars and clubs in those places. But in Japan, not so much. While the Yankee subculture have members from the working class, the Gyaru subculture started off with the girls from the middle class and above. Raised in traditional households dominated by strict patriarchal values, these girls were sick of sticking to the beauty standards forced on them by tradition. In conservative Japan, it's largely expected that a girl will be dainty, compliant, and hunt for a husband as soon as she's old enough. But the Gyaru movement says, F that. Not only does it involve drastic inversion of the traditional Japanese female image, but also a big change in character. These girls love to party and aren't shy about using curse words. All of the dressing, drinking, and swearing is basically a convoluted way to say one sentence as loudly as possible. I can do whatever the hell I want. When you think it that way, these dark-toned divas are actually quite a breath of fresh air in a country where women's behaviour is very strictly regulated by age-old traditions. And this rebellious fashion movement didn't just stick to the world of the wealthy. Soon after it emerged, plenty of less affluent girls hopped on board too. As the subculture became bigger and bigger with more participants, sub-styles were formed, namely ganguro and manba. Both are considered the extreme ends of the gyaru image. Everything about the original gyaru was very much like the western standard of beauty. Tanned skin, blonde hair, and revealing clothing. They usually applied a thick layer of makeup to give the impression of perfect skin and western style eyes. Makeup in Japanese is kesho, but meiku, derived from the word make, is also a pretty common term to refer to it. Unfortunately over time, the gyaru subculture became the target of the very kind of attention it was trying to shake off. Gyaru girls became seen as sex objects for the total rejection of Japanese modesty. Some girls cooked up a clever defense mechanism for any unwanted advances associated with their look, and this is how the ganguro and manba subcategories were formed. These took things to even greater extremes, with fake tents so dark that they're more mahogany than beige. Hair colors went from blonde to bright neons, and the makeup became so exaggerated that it was basically full-on face painting. This was a way to one-up the culture, which was trying to recapture the identity of these girls by over-sexualizing them. A way of saying to men, presumably while flipping them off, well, do you think I'm sexy now, huh? The gyaru subculture is not as evident on the streets of Tokyo as it was back in the 90s. These days, the most exaggerated gyaru girls, the ganguro and manba girls, can only really be seen at the subculture's tribute space in Shibuya, a cafe called Ganguro Cafe. Despite that, the ripples of the subculture live on. Japanese women are demanding more and more to be freed from traditional values in everything from business culture to school dress codes. Yaro culture was the visual representation of the turning point. 
or rather a breaking point, which got things on the way. Here's a quick recap of some of the vocab from this subculture. Utsukushisa, beauty, from the adjective utsukushi, to mean beautiful. Kesho, makeup. Meiku, the common slang word for makeup. Hiyake, tan. From mahogany toned feminism to high school biker wannabes to cross dressing rockers, the subcultures here are undoubtedly some of the most unique in the world. Well, if you only visited Tokyo Station, you'd be forgiven for thinking navy blue suits are the most risque clothing choice in Japan. Head to the right places and you're in for a full-on safari of oddball fashion. With these five subcultures, we've only just scratched the surface. Head over to the Nihongo Master blog if you're interested to learn more. As always, I hope you managed to pick up a few new Japanese words along the way today. And if you're keen on learning some more Japanese for yourself, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the official Nihongo Master website to learn more. Thank you so much for listening in, and I hope you'll join me next time when we'll be cutting another path through the colorful culture of Japan. Matane!